Tonight our text is going to be Jeremiah chapter 5, and uh, the book of Jeremiah, especially in this early section, is really all about the prophet Jeremiah as a relatively young man warning the southern kingdom of Judah about judgment that's to come. And to be honest, when you go through chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, there's a bit of sort of a repetitive feel to it. Because we get the feeling that the people's hearts were heavy and their ears were thick and they needed to hear it again and again. You know, after all, if one sermon would do the job, the book of Jeremiah might be one chapter long. But it didn't. So we get in tonight to another chapter where very poetically and very eloquently he's warning people in the kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah chapter 5, beginning now, verse 1. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. You see here, speaking through Jeremiah, God is exposing the corruption of the city of Jerusalem and the larger region of Judah. And what God told Jeremiah to do was to go through the city of Jerusalem and look all around. Search through the streets, search through the marketplaces, search everywhere you can and find me a righteous man. Find me, as it says right there in verse 1, one who executes judgment and one who sought the truth. And if you notice there in verse 1, God says, if you can find a man who seeks the truth, I will pardon her. God says, just show me one. Show me one man who really cares about justice. Show me one man who really cares about the truth, and I'll pardon the city. Doesn't this have just a little bit of the feel of when Abraham bargained with the Lord God over Sodom? And it says, well, there has to be a few righteous people there. And if there are a few righteous people, then God will preserve the city. But I just want you to notice the feel of all of this. God says, go ahead, Jeremiah, look, look throughout all of the land. We think of Jeremiah as a predecessor to the ancient Greek philosopher Diogenes here. None of you ever heard about the philosopher Diogenes. He was known to be the philosopher who went through Athens in the daytime with a lantern. I suppose it was an oil lamp. And he went around with a lantern in the daytime, which was a strange thing to do. You don't walk around in the daytime with a lantern. They said, what are you doing, Diogenes? He said, I'm searching for an honest man. And he kept searching through Athens and looking all over the place. But notice here, he searched for a righteous man and he said, If you can find one, I will spare the judgment. But notice God's opinion of them all. Verse 2. They say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. You see, Jeremiah could find a lot of religious people in Jerusalem. No shortage of supply of religious people. They all said, as the Lord lives, swearing by the name of the Lord. Yet what does it say there in verse 2? Surely they swear falsely. You could find a lot of religious people, but nobody who really sought the Lord in sincerity. Now, this prompted a prayer from Jeremiah. Look at the prayer in verse 3, where he says this. O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction 
They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. You see, the eyes of mankind may not be on the truth, but look at how the Lord sees it. Verse 3, O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? And Jeremiah prayed here with a sense of amazement. Lord, the truth is so important to you. It's completely unimportant to human beings, but it's so important to you. Why won't people turn? Why won't they turn from their ways when you discipline them? And then he says in verse 3, You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. Jeremiah mourned over the lack of repentance and brokenness over sin regarding the people of Jerusalem. See, notice this. They were stricken, but not grieved in their heart. They were consumed, yet not corrected. Despite all they had endured and all they would endure, notice the line there in verse 3, they have refused to return. Ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the most frightening things about human nature. And I wish I could just say it's a thing of they. But this is not the thing of me and you. Where God warns us and we do not listen. God instructs us and we close our ears. Listen, nobody amongst us expects sinless perfection. If anybody thinks they've arrived to that place... Please come on up. You can pray for me after the service. Mr. or Mrs. Sinless Perfect. But listen, this is what we understand. That at least when we err, our hearts and our minds will be open to correction from the Lord. I mean, if we can be corrected by the Lord, God can do anything with us, can't he? Because you're just going along. Oh, you're going off track here. You can be corrected back onto the right track. If we can just listen to the Lord and be corrected, God can do anything through us. But if we will not listen to the Lord, then where are we? We're lost. We're in trouble. And this is exactly the state that Jerusalem was in. So notice, he goes on to verse 5 now and he says, Therefore, to me, verse 4. Therefore I said, surely these are the poor. They are foolish. For they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. I will go to the great men and speak to them. For they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Now this is really instructive in verses 4 and 5. Jeremiah goes, look, I went around with my lamp, so to speak. I'm just kind of putting the figure of the later diagonies on him. But I searched all through the streets of Jerusalem to find an honest man, to find somebody who executed justice and someone who cared about the truth. I didn't find anybody. And then Jeremiah realized, oh, I was looking in the wrong place. I was looking among the common people. I was looking among the poor. Well, of course, among the poor people, they're poor. Notice how he straightens it in verse 4. They're poor and they're foolish. In other words, they're uneducated. I was looking for an honest man, for a righteous man, among the poor and uneducated. And you know them. There's not honest people among them. I needed to go among the high-class people. I needed to go among the movers and shakers of society, the great men, as he mentions in verse 5. Oh, there I'll find the good people, because they're educated. And what did he find? He found just more sophisticated sinners. Ladies and gentlemen, I I believe, and I'm sure you do too, this isn't really a debatable point, that education is a good thing, and, and that it benefits individuals, and it benefits a community, and it benefits a society when people receive a good education. 
whether that's at a primary, a secondary, a collegiate, a graduate level, good educational institutions and people working on them. It's a wonderful thing for our society and we need to build it and promote it in our midst. Do we not? Nevertheless, is it not a grave deception to think that an educated people will be necessarily a God-loving people? Sometimes, all an education does is make somebody more sophisticated in their rebellion against God. I remember hearing a saying from the late president, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, about this. It's sort of a humorous thing, but it illustrates the point. He said, you know, any uneducated man can steal from a trained boxcar. He said, but an educated man, he can find a way to steal the whole railroad. (laughs) Really, that's it sometimes. And this is exactly what Jeremiah saw. He says there in verse 4, Surely these are poor, they are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord. This explains it. They're poor, they're uneducated. That's why they're not godly. All they need is education. All they need is a higher place in society. But then Jeremiah realized that didn't fix it either. Because verse 5 says, I will go to the great men and speak to them. And he did. But then he says at the end of verse 5, But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Okay, broken the yoke. Do you know what that's referring to? He's using a picture of an ox with a yoke upon its, would we say shoulders, neck, whatever. A ox with a yoke upon its shoulders so that it can pull the plow. Now imagine in your mind an ox who did not want to be under the yoke. There's the farmer trying to put the yoke upon the ox so that it can do something useful, functional, helpful, and thing. And the ox kicks and twists and turns and thrusts with its horns. What can you do with that ox? You can't do anything with it. it it's really only fit for carving up for steaks, isn't it? Now, this is what I want you to consider. Even the great men in Jerusalem and Judah, they would not submit to God. Now, if you take a man or a woman who has an education, you take a man or a woman who has a higher standing in the community, and if you get them to submit to God, then that's a glorious thing. But unsubmitted to God, they can do more harm than good in society. He continues on in verse 6. Now he's picturing the judgment that will come upon them. He says, Therefore a lion from the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the deserts shall destroy them. A leopard shall watch over their cities. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces. Because their transgressions are many, their backslidings have increased. How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. They were like well-fed, lusty stallions. Everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Very interesting picture that he paints there in verse 6. Did you notice that? The picture in verse 6 describes several wild animals. First, it's a lion from the forest, then a wolf of the deserts, then a leopard coming against them. Now, most people see those as being symbolic representations of the coming Babylonian judgment, and that makes sense. 
I mean, you could say that Nebuchadnezzar and his armies that were eventually to come upon Judah and Jerusalem were like the lion, were like the wolf, were like the leopard. And that all makes sense. I, I, I would grant that. But I, I would suggest another thing as well. That he's also talking about the fact that these cities would be almost completely depopulated and the wild animals would return to them again. By the way, the archaeologists will tell you that this is exactly what happened. The archaeologists will tell us that in this period of Judah's history, when the Babylonians conquered the cities, many of them were never populated again and they were overrun by wild animals. You almost have that picture there, that this is what's happening. There's nothing there. These cities have been destroyed and left desolate because of the judgment of God and because they would not listen to God anymore. And he describes this in greater detail, like in verse 7, where he says, Your children have forsaken me when I have fed them to the full. You see, Judah's sin was all the worse considering the simple ingratitude that it reflected. I mean, God had been so good to them, and yet they ignored him, they turned their back to him. Now, those of you who are old enough to have raised children, you know how important it was to you or is to you as a parent to raise them with a sense of gratitude. How many times did you have to say to your children, what do you say? You know, and to try to get, the, get them to understand just the basics of politeness and gratitude. And when somebody gives something to you, you should say thank you. And you should have a sense of gratitude in your heart. And this is very important. But friends, if it's true on human relationships that it's important to have a sense of gratitude, how much more true is it with our relationship with God? And should we not live almost submerged in an ocean of gratitude to God. Someone who does me a favor in daily life, thank you very much, that's so kind, thank you for your kindness, but what would I possibly do to God who has given me everything? Everything. And that's why he says, again, let me read to you the phrase from verse 7, your children have forsaken me when I had fed them to the full. And instead of being gracious towards God and filled with gratitude towards them, what does he say there? He says there in verse 7, instead, spiritually speaking, they committed adultery. Now, I don't want to go on and on about this, although it is worthy of a little bit of examination. Just this idea that God uses adultery as a picture, as an illustration of their going after foreign gods. And he did this for two reasons. First of all, because God regarded his relationship with Israel to be like a marriage covenant. And when they went out after other gods, when they worshiped Baal or Asherah or Molech, it was like them going to an uh, adulterous relationship and departing from their covenant relationship with the Lord. But the other thing that made it relevant was so often their worship of these pagan gods was tied up with sex rituals, with ritualistic prostitution and all the rest of it. So you could say that it was both a symbolic adultery and a literal adultery, and God called them on it both. Matter of fact, look at how powerfully he speaks here in verse 7, where he says, Then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlot's houses. In other words, it's as if he pictures, you know, troops marching into the prostitute's house. Because so many, and they're so organized, and they're so given over to it. It's a very powerful and a poetic description of how they were given over as a people to pagan worship and to ritual prostitution. 
I noticed one commentator named Thompson. He had a very interesting comment on this thing. If you notice there in verse 7, where it talks about the harlot's house, he just made a very interesting observation that the Hebrew naming of the harlot calls her a harlot, a prostitute. Do you want to know what the Canaanites called that particular individual, that cultic prostitute? They called her a holy woman. And God says, no, no, she's not a holy woman. I will not use the vocabulary of the Canaanites to refer to these ritualistic prostitutes. I will call them what they are, harlots. And then at the end of it all, look at verse 9. Isn't this an inescapable question where God simply asks at verse 9, shall I not punish them for these things? Jeremiah looked all around. Where's a righteous man? I looked among the poor and I didn't find a righteous man there. I looked among the great and the rich and I didn't find a righteous man there. Instead, I found them organized as if they were troops marching into the houses of ritual prostitution. And then he just simply asked that question, shall I not punish them for these things? This was a nation ripe for the judgment of God. From the time when Jeremiah began his prophetic ministry to the time that the uh, calamity, the judgment, actually came upon Judah, do you know how long it was? It was about a generation. In other words, they were very ripe for judgment, yet that judgment was still 25, 35, even 40 years off in the distance. Do you know what we say about this? God will call attention to judgment long before It is poured out. Don't we think about that when we think about the United States? Now, I'm not saying it doesn't apply to other countries. If I was in another country, I might be speaking about their particular cultural and and, and social context, that, but I'm not in another country. Right now, I'm living, I'm preaching right now at this moment in California in the United States of America. And right now, as you look around at our culture, there's a lot of things that make you say, we deserve the judgment of God. We track in a parallel way right along with ancient Jerusalem and Judah of Jeremiah's day. We say we see it. Now, am I saying that judgment is going to come tomorrow? Not necessarily. It may be a generation off. But friends, you see how gracious God is in warning us now? In calling out a remnant now? In appealing to his people now? if perhaps maybe such a judgment might be forestalled. Look at this, verse 10. Go up on her walls and destroy, but do not make a complete end. Take away her branches, for they're not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, says the Lord. They have lied about the Lord and said, it is not he. Neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see the sword or famine And the prophets become wind, for the word is not in them. Thus it shall be done to them. In other words, he's talking here in verse 10 about the destroyed walls of the city. And friends, when a walls of a city was destroyed, usually it signaled a complete end to that city. You knock down the walls, you invade, there's nothing stopping it. It's gone, it's over. Yet... Friends, this is one of the glorious things about Jeremiah. Let's be just very straightforward here. This is a very depressing chapter. 
It's all about judgment. It's all about warnings. Yet even in the midst of a very depressing chapter filled with judgment and warnings, God cannot resist giving out hope. That's why he says in verse 10, go out on our walls and destroy, but do not make a complete end. Where everybody else would have thought they're finished, they're done, it's finished, over, God says, no, the walls will be broken down, they'll be conquered, they'll be carried off captive, exile will happen, it'll be terrible, but I will not make a complete end. I will break them back, bring them back, I should say. And friends, what a glorious, wonderful truth that God did, for his own purposes, allow a terrible judgment to come upon Judah many years later from the time Jeremiah prophesied, yet he said, I'm going to bring him back. I'm not done with Israel. I'm not done with my covenant people. And I won't be done with them until the kingdom of the Messiah is fully established. I will complete what I have started with them. Yet I will not make a complete end. Those are words of hope for anybody. So he says, I will not make a complete end. But notice this in verse 12 where he says, They have lied about the Lord and said, It is not he. You see, the problem with Jeremiah is that he had competition. He had competition from the false prophets of his days. The false prophets who assured the people of Judah and Jerusalem that their present problems were not the judgment of God, were not a wake-up call from Yahweh. And so what did they do? Well, when these things started to come upon them, they said, why, it is not he, it's not the Lord doing this. And then they also said, look at verse 12, neither will evil come upon us. And when they did this, they lied about the Lord. Friends, it's a heavy thing when a false prophet lies about the Lord. And that's what these false prophets were doing in the days of Jeremiah. You see, because God's judgment was manifest all about them, but false prophets said, no, it's not the Lord. Forget about it. It's not he. God's not doing anything with this. I don't know. It's just a bad week. It's just a bad year. Uh, It's bad luck, whatever you want to call it, but it's not the Lord. It's not his judgment. God stands up in front of those false prophets and he says, they lie about me. Friends, it's a heavy thing to lie about the Lord, don't you think? Now, I don't know, maybe the false prophets actually believed what they were dishing out. I don't know if they believed it or not. Maybe they meant well. Maybe they thought they were encouraging the people. I don't really know. Nevertheless, they lied about the Lord, which is a serious and a grievous sin. In our own day, when we come across people who are falsely speaking in the name of God, Even if they mean well, even if they believe their own lies, we say to them, stop lying about the Lord. Stop it. No more of this. And then notice this. It's a very powerful phrase in verse 13. And the prophets become wind, for the word is not in them. Those false prophets were nothing more than wind. They were movement without substance. God's word was not in them. And their so-called prophetic words were from them, not from the substance of God's words. And friends, there are people today who purport to speak in the name of the Lord. And I believe that sometimes God does speak 
in a way, in a contemporary setting. He does speak in a way that has application to an immediate situation. But when it is evidently shown that somebody does not speak in the name of the Lord, then they should humbly regard it as something grievous. And they should say, I do not want to misrepresent God in any way whatsoever. I do not want to be a prophet like wind that has movement but no substance. Do you want the contrast to the prophet of wind? Look at verse 14. Therefore the Lord God of hosts says, because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire. And this people would, and it shall devour them. Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, says the Lord. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty men, and they shall eat up your harvest and your bread, which your sons and daughters should eat. They shall eat up your flocks and herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. They shall destroy your fortified cities in which you trust with the sword. You see, on the one hand, you have the prophets of wind. Movement, but no substance. On the other hand, you have the prophets like Jeremiah. Look at what he's like, verse 14. I will make my words in your mouth fire, and the pissed people would, and it shall devour them. You see, God would make Jeremiah a prophet of fire, whose words would announce the devouring judgment to come. And as a true prophet, Jeremiah's words would have substance, unpleasant substance, but they would have substance indeed. That's why God says in verse 15, behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar. The Babylonians are going to come. They're going to come against you with the judgment that Jeremiah promised. Verse 18, nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. Again, more hope. I will not make a complete end of you. And it will be when you say, why does the Lord God do all these things to us? Then you shall answer them, just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. Now again, I don't want to ignore the promise there in verse 18. The encouraging word. We are grasping for any word of encouragement that we could find in Jeremiah. And so when he says for a second time in the chapter, I will not make a complete end of you, we grab onto that and we cherish it. But then we notice what he says again in verse 19, where he says, just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. In other words, hey, uh, Judah, you, you really like those foreign gods? Great, I'll send you to the foreign land so you can worship them. You like the gods of Babylon? You like the gods of the Assyrians? You like all those foreign gods? Well, wonderful. Let's make a little arrangement. I'll boot you out of my land, and you can go serve them in their land. This is what God would do. Verse 20. Declare this in the house of Jacob, and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, And who have ears and hear not, do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence? Who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it. 
And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away and your sins have withheld good from you. You gotta love how verse 21 begins, right? Hear now, O foolish people. That's really not a great way to win over an audience. Could you imagine me coming out on a Sunday morning? Hello, foolish people. But that's essentially what Jeremiah is doing. But they were fools. Do you want to know why they were fools? In the example that Jeremiah gives in the verses that I just read, they were fools because they refused to look at nature. And did you see the example that he gave there? Look at it there in verse 22. He says, though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. In other words, God says, he has placed the sand as the bound of the sea. How far does the sea go? Um, Up to the sand. Why doesn't it go beyond the sand? Um, Because it doesn't. Well, but the sand is so soft and movable. I see children digging in it and building sandcastles. Why doesn't the sand just get pushed away by all the water? Because it doesn't. Now, when you think about it, what is a bank of sand against the mighty Pacific Ocean? Yet God has engineered it where even something that seems as unstable as sand has a way to bound in the mighty sea. God says, I use a little thing like the sand to bound in the mighty sea, the Pacific Ocean, and you won't submit to me. The ocean submits to the sand. You get the picture that he's using there. The ocean submits to the sand, and you won't submit to me. Verse 23, but this people has a defiant and a rebellious heart. God's people did not learn the lesson that nature clearly teaches it is foolish to fight against God. Nature understands this, but people don't. That's why he says, and look at verse 25, it's a heavy verse. He says here, your iniquities have turned these things away and your sins have withheld good from you. See, God just described the blessings of rain and harvest. And then he told Judah why they don't have those things. He said, don't blame me. It's your sins. It's your iniquities. Ladies and gentlemen, isn't this human nature? This is us. We look at the Lord. And as a culture, as a society... We rebel against him. We reject him. We ignore his laws. People almost have competitions to see how many of the Ten Commandments they can break. I mean, they just disregard the word of God, the law of God. They go their own way. But then when calamity comes, man shakes his fist at God and says, why are you doing this to me? And do you know what God says in that day? Let me read it to you again. Verse 25. Your iniquities have turned these things away and your sins have withheld good from you. God says, don't blame me. Verse 26. 
For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men as a cage is full of birds. So their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they become great and grown rich. They have grown fat. They are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless. Yet they prosper. And the right of the needy, they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Here, Jeremiah describes rich people who prey upon poor people. Those who take advantage of the weak and the defenseless and destroy them. The picture that he uses there in verses 26 and 27 is of a bird catcher. What you would call a fowler, somebody who captures birds. And he says, just like that, the powerful and the influential, they're catching people, they're oppressing them, they're victimizing them. Look at verse 28. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless. What good are they doing for society? Nothing. Verse 28, yet they prosper. Friends, their prosperity was not from the blessing of God. It was the result of their own sinful ambition and enterprise. And therefore, instead of having the blessing of God upon it, it had the judgment of God upon it. Where God says at the end there, verse 29, Shall I not punish them for these things? Which brings us to the last two verses of the chapter. Friends, in some ways, I find these last two verses to be the most fascinating of the whole chapter. Look at these last two verses, verses 30 and 31. He says, an astonishing and a horrible thing. Okay, stop right there. Wow, an astonishing and horrible thing. Well, what is this astonishing and horrible thing? He's going to list three things. An astonishing and a horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? Verse 30. An astonishing and a horrible thing has been committed in the the land. Well, what is it? What are you talking to us about, Jeremiah? What is this astonishing and horrible thing? Look at it there in verse 31. First of all, the prophets prophesy falsely. That's the first thing they do. You see, the false words of the pretended prophets are, in the eyes of God, an astonishing and a horrible thing. They claim to speak in the name of the Lord, but they speak falsely. Secondly, verse 31, The priests rule by their own power. You see, leaders among God's people, they don't rule by love and leadership of God, but they rule by their own power. Their authority and their leadership is not of God, it's of man. Just like Jesus said, that's the way that the Gentiles lead, not the way that it should be in his kingdom. But then the third thing, and friends, maybe this is the most astonishing thing at all. Look at it in verse 31. And my people love to have it so. Friends, it is a wonder that there are false prophets among God's people today. It is a wonder and an astonishment that there are people who abuse power and who are authoritarian among God's people today. But you want to know what the strangest thing is? Is that people follow those people. That my people love to have it so. Throughout the history of the church, 
all the way back to the book of Acts. There have been charlatans. There have been spiritual tyrants. There have been these people that come and go in the body of Christ. It's nothing new. You throw me, you show me the charlatans of today. You show me the spiritual tyrants. I yawn. So what? They're always around. What astonishes me is the followings that they get. And that's what astonished Jeremiah. My people love to have it so. They run to the false prophet. They say, speak to me falsely, please, false prophet. They run to the spiritual tyrant and they say, lord it over me. Rule by your own power. But look at it in verse 31. This is the message to the prophet, the false prophet, to the priest who rules by his own authority and to the foolish people who run after them. What are you gonna do? Verse 31, but what will you do in the end? Where's it going to get you? Nowhere. There's nothing there for you. There's no relief. There's no escape. You've gone after that which is false. You've gone after that which is corrupt. Friends, but what will you do in the end? Well, let me close with this. What will you do in the end? How did our chapter begin? What was Jeremiah doing? He was searching all through the streets of Jerusalem for what? For a righteous man. One who would execute judgment. One who would do what was true. Did he find one? No. But we have found one. Have we not found one righteous man for whose sake we are pardoned? But what will you do in the end? We will put our trust in that one righteous man. We will put our trust in Jesus of Nazareth. We will put our trust to the one to whom Diogenes or any other philosopher could put their lamp up to and say, this is the son of God. We'll put our trust in that one who is perfectly righteous and perfectly true and say, by you, pardon will come to God's people and please transform us into your image. That's what we will do. Jeremiah's quest was answered just hundreds of years after he started his church. There was a man who came to Jerusalem who perfectly fulfilled this thing of the one righteous man in the streets of Jerusalem and he will bring salvation to his people. Father, that's our prayer. Our prayer that is in the midst of these dark chapters of a foreboding judgment that's announced in the book of Jeremiah that we would see that strong beam of light of Jesus Christ evident to us. The one man, the one man who is righteous, the one man who is true, the one man who wins pardon for God's people. Thank you for that, Lord. We put our trust in you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, Troy. Hey, David. Yeah, it was good. Heavy, but man, way to bring it around. It was good. Now, come on. People were anticipating that. Heaviness? They were. No, they were anticipating coming back to Jesus as being the one man. Yeah. Were you? Okay. Yes. Okay, good. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Ready to launch right in? What do we got? Okay, so why does the Lord use the feminine pronoun in verse 1 while referring to any man? In verse 1. I know the answer. I 
seek in her open places. Okay, Troy, you know the answer, please. He's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about Jerusalem. Yeah. And, and by I, the way, that phrase in verse 1, seek in her open places, open places probably refers to the marketplaces, yeah. to the wide streets where they would conduct markets. So he says, walk through the streets, walk through the marketplaces. That's the idea there in verse 1. Yeah. I did have to go back and read it again. Like, okay, wait. Because yes. you know, it switches. That's right. Okay. Uh, the next one here. You can just answer all the questions, sure. Yeah, well, I just, I just wanted that one. That's it. I'm good. All right. How do you listen to the Lord when you think you're listening to yourself? How do you know when God is speaking to you to change? How does one surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit? Well, look, the most thoroughly, the best way to learn to listen to the Lord is to steep yourself. In other words, just kind of like you would steep a tea bag in hot water. Steep yourself in the scriptures. God speaks to us in and through his word. Now, I'm not saying that God can't give a contemporary or spontaneous word to us to guide us along the way. But if you want to know how to listen to the word of the Lord and how to discern the voice of the Lord, steep yourself in the scriptures. And you'll understand the heart of God. You'll understand the vocabulary of God. You'll understand the guidance of God. This is the way to do it. So how can you tell the difference between just some thoughts in your own head, like your own thoughts, or those... I think that's one thing they're asking also. Well, now... Sometimes, honestly, you can't. But if you think God is leading in you in a particular way, you prayerfully compare it to the scriptures. Perhaps you should uh, console somebody who knows the, the scriptures, who knows the heart and the mind of God, and say, hey, I think God might be saying this. Does this track with you? Does this a sense of agreement? And then you go on from there with a sense of confirmation from God. Yeah. But just because you think it doesn't mean it's the voice of God to you. But when I read it in the scriptures, I know it's the voice of God. Okay, so that's a litmus test. Yes. Yeah, excellent. And at the beginning, it talks about being people of truth, you yes. know, or searching for you know, people of truth or men of truth, uh, living in a, a truth-adverse society or culture. You know, how, how can we practically be people of truth? Wow. You know, it takes not only knowing the Scriptures but being able to recognize the lies of the world around us. And um, I I would say that it really depends on a person's being able to have some discernment and to actually think about what comes to them in society. Think about the messages that are all around them. Yeah. I mean, every uh, advertisement, every commercial you watch on the television, it has a message to you about what's important. What will make life fulfilling? What's good in this world? And and you can just kind of blankly buy into it, or you can say, no, that's wrong. I hear what it's saying, but no, that's wrong. And and you can think that way. Yeah. Like, I used to love picking apart songs, like the top Mm -hmm. ten songs, and just pick them apart and go, that's that's so wrong. It's so off track, but then try to redeem it or see how you can twist it to make it, you know, true. Yes. Okay, so here's uh, another one. Why are people never able to stand with God after being brought down because of their sin? Well, I think people are able to stand with God after being brought down to their sin. If, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Yeah. He will. I mean, this is what God loves to do. God loves to lift up the humble. And you, you understand, God's End game. God's desire for Judah was not judgment. 
God's desire for Judah was blessing and an outpouring of his spirit and goodness. He just had to get the attention of a consistently disobedient and rebellious Judah. But once he had their attention, the blessing came again. God is a God of second chances. He's a God of restoration. And to the person, who, you know, to that question, I would just say, what's the phrase that we saw several times over? He will not uh, make an end forever. Where is that in verse 18? Nevertheless, I will not make a complete end of you. God's into hanging on to that thread and restoring from that one thread that's left over. Yeah, yeah that's good. In, in our neighborhood, there's somebody who tore down their house. And uh, you, you know how it is where when you tear down a house, but you leave up, you know, about six feet of wall, so you can call it a remodel. It's always funny when they do that. But really, that's, that's why they, it's minor. I'm no construction expert. That's why they, they leave up about a six-foot section of wall. Then it's a remodel. It's not that. Well, you know what? If that's all you got left is that little hanging on piece, submit that to the Lord, and God can rebuild something glorious. Yeah, that's good. Excellent. Okay. Uh, was the Babylonian nation ancient at the time of the prophecy in verses 15 and 16? And if they weren't ancient at that time, does this prophecy have uh, later fulfillment? No, the Babylonian nation was ancient, going all the way back to Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. The Babylonians were indeed an ancient people. Yeah, okay. Yes. So it's been around a long time. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, they rose to great power and prominence yeah. fairly recently. But as a kingdom, as a people, very ancient. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay, I like the transparency of this one. Um, I always feel like God is judging me or about to. Thus, I live in fear and not joy. I thought that was not from God, but now from Jeremiah, maybe he is. Is that so? Well, okay. First of all, this is what you need to understand. God's word to Judah through Jeremiah is based on the old covenant. God was not judging Judah to destroy them, but to correct them. And it's possible that God has allowed some adversity, some difficulty in the life of you, one of his children, for the sake of correction. Maybe he needed to get your attention about something. As the writer of the Hebrews describes it, it's the discipline of the Lord. Perhaps that is the occasion. But please, this is what you need to do. You need to regard God's correction as a sign of his love and his care for you. Even if God is correcting you and it doesn't feel good, it's out of his love. It's because you are a son or a daughter of God that he even cares enough for you to correct you. Now, this is very easy to consider in the theoretical. I mean, you think of a relationship between a parent and a child. And a parent that desperately loves its child but needs to correct bad behavior and might administer some discipline, some corporal punishment to the child to get them to understand what they need to do and what they don't need to do. But the parent loves the child desperately. You would understand this, that it would be the parent who hates the child who just says, hey, do whatever you want, I don't care. No, it's the parent that loves the child that says, I will administer correction in the right way. If you, a believer, feel that you're under the correcting hand of God, don't take it as a mark of his displeasure. Take it as a mark of his love towards you. However, 
perhaps what you're going through isn't the correction of God at all. Maybe it's just a sanctifying hardship in your life. So this is something that you need to seek God about in the midst of your trial. And if you don't know, sit down with another brother or sister and just say, listen, this stuff's going on in my life. I wonder if it's the correction of God. Would you pray with me about it and talk with me about it? Maybe we can discern this from the Lord and get some sense from that. But you know what? God is for you. He's not against you. Amen. Yeah. Okay, kind of on the heels of that, I think you answered a little bit between you know Old Covenant and New Covenant. The question is, if God's blessings come, when and because we obey, is that legalism and not grace? Well, it could be legalism. If it's done with the idea that we earn God's blessing. But this is another thing about understanding how, ble- how obedience relates to blessing. Obedience also relates to blessing just out of natural occurrence. Okay, if you obey God and um, live a righteous lifestyle, your life is going to be a lot better, period. Because that's how God has built the human being, to live in obedience to him. And when we disobey God, we bring so much trouble and so much difficulty into our life that doesn't have to be from the hand of God at all. It's just natural consequences from our disobedience. That isn't legalism. That's just the law of cause and effect operating within the life. However, it could be that a believer is trying to impress God and show God how righteous they are by their wonderfully obedient life and trusting in their own righteousness and not the righteousness of Jesus. That's where it gets into legalism. Mm 